0: Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on, catch up to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Liz Truss has announced her resignation. What next for the Tory party... And more importantly, for the country, there are strong indications that Boris Johnson wants to make a comeback just six weeks after leaving office in shame. Though under new rules drawn up by the Conservative 1922 committee, he'll need to win the support of at least 100 Tory MPs to enter the race. What is all this doing to the UK's reputation abroad? We'll be hearing from Byline Times executive editor and co-founder Peter Dukes and former senior British diplomat, Alexandra Hall Hall. Before that, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our must read monthly newspaper edited by our colleague Hadeep Matharu, which has exclusive content that you cannot get online. I know the latest edition has just gone to print. And it is excellent. And we can report without fear or favour because there's no billionaire or shadowy corporation telling us what to say. Our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So if you can, please subscribe to Byline Times. Head over to our website, bylinetimes.com for more details on how to subscribe. Subscriptions start from as little as as £3 a month. So go on, do it. Head over to bylinetimes.com. So then, Peter Jukes, Alexandra Hall-Hall. Peter, you first. Can you sum up what has happened in a momentous day in which we've seen the resignation of yet another prime minister?
1: Well, I mean, the short version of that, Adrian, is the piffle, the inverted pyramid of piffle, to coin a phrase used once by Boris Johnson of the last six years is finally collapsing. Liz Truss is a morbid symptom of what has happened to our constitution, our country, our economy, more than anything, in the last six years since the lies told to us on the side of a bus that we'd save 350 million from leaving the EU and that'd be spent on the NHS. Everything else, I say, Alex might agree or disagree, stems from that lie because We first had it: Theresa May, Boris Johnson having led the Vote Leave campaign. (laughs) Michael Gove stabbed him in the back, and and Theresa May came in trying to square this circle of sovereignty and economic growth with her version of Brexit, which ended freedom of movement, single market. She was rapidly stabbed in the back by Boris Johnson, who plotted against her and came up and went to the country with his oven-ready deal, which wasn't that, well, it was half-baked cake as far as I could see, which promised the earth and actually was an even much harder Brexit than the one that Theresa May had gone forward with. The consequences of that were disguised by COVID and, uh, and then the war in Ukraine in that our relative economic decline was masked by general global decline and recession and the supply chains and oil price hikes. But what happens is that Boris Johnson who created, who fronted this huge first lie of 350 million on the side of a bus, uh, became addicted to lies. He built his own inverted pyramid of lies, especially around lockdown breaking parties, let alone contracts to cronies and everything he did. He collapsed with that. And so we have the last bit of froth at the top or the bottom of this inverted pyramid of piffle, which is Liz Truss, because she promised Johnsonism without even the residual fake allegiance to leveling up, she promised Singapore and Thames to lower taxes and uh, go for growth with no market fundamentalists, market fundamentals underneath her market fundamentalist advisors. And the world caught up and woke up to the catastrophe, the slow motion car crash of the last six years. So that's my sort of epic version of it, I don't see that any successor can solve the problems in the Conservative Party, which has been basically constructed, confected out of a lie for six years. And uh, we're in a very parlous state. And we have the prospect now
0: of Johnson, at the very least, seeking to regain power. The rules by the 1922 committee for the next Conservative Party leader election have, certainly in the eyes of some people, been drawn up in a way to exclude Johnson because he would need the support of at least 100 MPs to get onto the final ballot Sheet for the for the membership to vote, but the suspicion is, I think, that if the membership did get to vote, if he does get those 100 MPs, that he would probably win the popular vote amongst
1: Conservative Party members. Well, this is just another example of the trap they're in. Let us not forget that Boris Johnson faces a major parliamentary inquiry in November against the multiple lies he told about breaking lockdown. The idea that Boris Johnson, who left in disgrace, was marginally above um, Liz Truss in his ratings but still limbo, she just limbo danced under his low ratings, is just shows what's happened to the Conservative Party. You know, it was Donald Trump himself who said that Boris Johnson was Britain Trump. This is a man like Donald Trump who's only thinking of his own advancement, his own profile in the papers, his own personal vendettas, his own vainglory. He will do nothing to steady the markets. He will do nothing to help the country. It's all, as it always has been, about him. And it is just spin. It's just spin. He just wants to be in the headlines. Guido Fawkes, who, of course, Big Boris backer registered in 2012, the site Boris 2020 was such a big Boris backer, is running this ridiculous slate where Boris Johnson's got 40 MPs backing him and Rishi Sunak's got 32 and somebody else I can't remember has seven. It's all, you know, this is just people pursuing their pals in power to get gongs, I don't know, or crony contracts. It's nothing to do with the real world. No way is Boris Johnson coming back, but he loves the limelight. And meanwhile, we suffer. Alexandra, you are
0: a former senior British diplomat with three decades worth of experience. How does this make the UK look abroad?
2: (laughs) Well, how do I come in on the back of uh, Peter's uh, rather graphic and um, vehement comments, all of which I agree with. I mean, how it looks on the world stage is exactly how it looks at home, which is it's a shambles, it's a shit show. I'm no longer a diplomat, so I can say words like that. Um, The problem that we have is it's not even the last six weeks of chaos. It's not even a few months of vacant government since Boris was um, dethroned in July. I mean, Johnson has been under pressure since Partygate started emerging last year. And Britain has been in trouble, as Peter said, really ever since the Brexit referendum vote. And I would argue even the months leading up to that vote because the dishonesty crept in then. And ever since the Brexit vote, Politicians have been trying to rationalise a policy decision and promising things that they can't actually deliver, and the distortions and the twisting and turnings that successive governments have had to do to try to deliver what is actually not deliverable, and they have promised so much and they can't deliver it. It has distorted all our policy choices and all our politics for the last six years. And I think foreigners would be prepared to deal with Britain if we could just identify a course, speak honestly about it, and implement it with some sort of competence. I mean, as you will know, I was based in Washington um, trying to explain to Americans what was going on with Brexit. And when the vote first happened, and in the first few years, I would argue that You know, a lot of Americans I spoke to, you know, some of them had views on the wisdom or not of Brexit, but they all trusted that at the end of the day, Britain was a sensible, competent country. We must have had our reasons for leaving and therefore we must have had a plan for implementing Brexit and it would be implemented in a way that reflected certain common sense principles. And I think what's been exposed is that We did not have a plan. We didn't know what we were doing. There was no strategy. And we have been totally incompetent. And that is, I think, what really worries international partners. It's not necessarily the choices we make. It's can we implement anything competently? And, you know, I'm sure members of this government will say the last thing we need is more disruption with a general election. Now, in fact, I heard Robert Jenrick saying exactly that earlier on. a different podcast. We need some stability now. Um, But if you're an international figure, do you invest time in building up relationships with whoever is the next prime minister, whoever is the next foreign minister, whoever is the chancellor? If there's going to continue to be this turmoil, will they be willing to sign treaties with us if, you know, maybe in another six months there'll be another defenestration of a British prime minister and the cabinet? So, although this government likes to claim that now's not the time for an election, um, we need to stabilize everything, from the international community's point of view, until um, you know, this government has serially not been able to show that. And I wanted to pick up on a couple of things that Peter said. So, first of all, yes, I agree. Brexit has sort of exposed all this rot and it continues to distort all our policy choices and it's fundamentally feeding dishonesty at the heart of this government as they try to reconcile the irreconcilable. But secondly, I think what Brexit has done is it's exposed that our constitution and our system isn't as strong and as robust as we thought it was. Our media peddle lies, and are in the pockets of some politicians, that our politicians can be influenced by think tanks, the sources of whose funding remain murky, that when an executive overreaches, we do not have checks and balances that exist in other governments. We don't have a head of state who can hold the executive to account. We don't have courts who can hold the executive to account. We don't have an upper chamber that can hold our executive to, count, to account. So I think it's exposed much more fundamental problems in our system. And then the last thought is, this morning as I was watching Liz Truss, I was thinking this is the inevitable denouement of you know years of horrible politics. But actually, as Peter was alluding, it isn't even the denouement yet. It seems to me we still have further to go. If people like Johnson think they can put their hat in the ring and have a sort of a degree of MP still thinking he should come back, or candidates like Sweller, Braverman and others who have embraced Brexit with all its dishonesty, we're not yet at the bottom.
0: Uh, Peter, one of the few things to emerge from Liz Truss's premiership was the revelation, perhaps no surprise ultimately, that there would not be, at any point in the near future... A post-Brexit trade deal with the United States and this was held up as one of the great prizes of Brexit and because the Labour Party does not want to be seen to be reigniting the EU referendum Brexit war again because it feels I'm sure that that would be counterproductive and it would give its enemies something to seize upon That's not really been discussed, has it? But we know from independent academic research that the friction caused by Brexit has harmed UK trade. We know that there is still an ongoing issue with the Northern Ireland Protocol, the over-my-dead-body border in the Irish Sea that Boris Johnson said would never happen, but which nevertheless exists in practice as we speak. And the big prize, the trade deal with the United States. It ain't there. So do we need to encourage politicians from opposition parties or indeed encourage the Conservatives to address Brexit directly? Or is it a case of waiting until a subsequent election and then simply doing deals with the EU, which bring us closer
1: without reigniting the Brexit war? Yeah, I mean, Brexit, well, I never like the term. And Brexit means Brexit thanks to Theresa May, is one of those conundrums which will haunt my mind, no doubt, millions for years to come. What did Brexit mean? we you know, we could have left the EU. Norway isn't in the EU, neither Switzerland, neither many other countries which have close trading relationships, which have open borders, in the case of Schengen and Switzerland, I think, or Norway are part of the single market, or other countries, Iceland, what we did, what happened was that even Daniel Hannan said, "Oh, we'll stay in the single market. Brexit could have been the norway solution we It's about taking back some of our own laws, but being close to our European partners who, by dint of gravity, being a huge market of three hundred and fifty million people, created largely by Margaret Thatcher, is a a bigger volume of people, much integrated supply chains than the United States. But Brexit became a way of beating over the head any other politician. Nigel Farage would always start it. Oh, it's not pure Brexit. He's doing it now. It's globalists. It's Remainers, can you believe, who have brought down uh, Liz Truss. Brexit seems to me anytime i investigated it talked to uh, people 17.4 million things but the 17.4 million people who voted for it that by the way it was a two percent margin four percent difference two percent margin that means if one in 50 people had changed their vote we wouldn't be in this mess but look they just people decided to leave the eu but in canada because the complexity is around the referendum in Quebec about separatism uh, a couple of decades ago, they have a clarity. law. What do you mean by Brexit? You mean leaving the single market? But there was never any clarity. It means not even joining a customs union. We now have the hardest Brexit possible. And we have inflicted that damage on ourselves because the Germans are laughing. The French are laughing. They get, you know, all these medicine manufacturers, the car manufacturers now relocating there. You know, I think the new mini is going to be made in Germany. You know, it is one of those things which I do think Alex is right. The media has a large part to blame because it was never explained which Brexit they wanted. And it inflated itself to the worst possible Brexit short of no deal, which we nearly got. That's why Johnson wanted to prorogue Parliament. He wanted to leave the EU without a deal. No U.S. deal is going to solve that. And no U.S. president is going to deal with the U.K., which breaks treaties over the Northern Ireland Protocol. You know, Congress, a lot of big supporters of Irish heritage who are not going to see, who see Britain still as an empire, are not going to see some imperial edict reneged on by the british uh you know over the good friday agreement it is at the heart of it i think uh, alex is dead right about this brexit has exposed it's the proximate cause it is the reason our economy can't grow because we can't get skilled labor in we can't transfer skills we can't export properly but at the heart of it is this imperial exceptionalism we thought we could go at low we thought we're better than the irish who's economy is booming even the northern ireland economy is doing much better than ours because they don't have this hard this hard border they are part effectively of the single market at least the customs union so you know it is it's just revealed to ourselves to a certain number of people for the etonian upper classes for you know a lot of these public school boys i saw in parliament last week that their egotism and their arrogance have brought us to a tragic floor. And in every tragic drama, that has to happen. Humility has to happen. I don't know how this ends, but it's not ending well. And one day, we'll go back to Europe. There's a new agreement being written up in 2025. Our trading go, sorry about this. Yes, the ECJ can pass these laws, because it's worth us succumbing, giving some sovereignty up to the European ECJ in order to export, you know, to regulate Phytosanitary reports phyto oh, i forget those products that come from the sea to regulate medicines to regulate gdpr we're trying to get out gdpr to share data over policing and security threats you pull your sovereignty in order to be richer and more secure and britain has done the world a huge favor because like russia not quite such an extreme violent way has revealed the limits of imperial nostalgia. And every right-wing party after Brexit, who used to support Brexit at their own exits, whether it's in France or Italy, now removed <laughs> leaving the EU from any of their right-wing agenda. We've been, you know, a moral lesson to the world, but not a good one for us.
0: Let's bring in David Henry who has joined us and David I think you are a representative or spokesperson for the Alba party is that right or just a supporter
3: Well no well I'm not sure I'm a spokesperson for them but yes I am a member of the Alba party Yeah I I stood in the council election elections so uh, <coughs> I've gone through their vetting and I made two speeches at the weekend at our conference one on energy regulation and the other one on men supporting um, equality and, in particular, women's rights. Um, obviously, our party is focused on delivering independence. I think uh, I think I was on your, uh, I was listening to your thing a few weeks ago, and I'd been to a conservative <laughs> organized um, public meeting, which was uh, titled A Union for Everyone. And I went there and I, I think I got the first question and. There was no positive message, but I did pick up from that meeting, that's two to three weeks ago, that there was a civil war brewing in the Conservative Party, which is precisely what's now been exposed. Um, we watched this above uh, north of the border, as, as you probably know, very few people in Scotland vote Conservative, approximately 21%, I think, in elections actually vote for them. So they don't represent the majority in Scotland. And we watch in horror as obviously in Scotland in 2016, 62% that took part in the referendum for Brexit voted remain. And all the things that were being predicted that would happen, Scotland exports more than it imports. So of course, the EU is a much more important part of our economy um, than the UK as a whole. But the, the damage was obvious to anyone that knew how um, our economy works and how reliant the UK was on free movement of workers and free movement of goods and services. And to watch them cut cut one of their arms off um, and we're we're held captive, so we we can't fix this, um, is astounding. And to watch them now say, we'll bring back Boris, My God, can anyone imagine what would be the situation we'd be in if Boris had sent the second letter where he supported um, being in the EU? I think we'd be living in a different world and we wouldn't be having all the problems that we're having now.
0: Uh, uh, Let me bring Peter in there because, Peter, uh, you know, you've talked about the the ways in which Brexit has harmed this nation and I think this is one of the most obvious ways, isn't it? The, the the differences that there are, which many people celebrate uh, between Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland, and so on, those differences have become deep divisions. And I respect the fact that, of course, there are people who, are, who seek independence in, in all of those constituent parts of the UK. But unquestionably, the divisions, which perhaps to an extent have always been there. A wedge has been driven between different parts of the union by this.
1: Yes, I mean, you know, and this goes back to what Alex said about our constitution. We've just semi reformed it, some changes to the House of Lords, sort of some form of devolution, which now it appears is subject to the whim of the courts. But I think, I mean, I think this is divide and rule. This is imperial divide and rule, which goes beyond the nations and regions of the UK. It is, and I was in Parliament yesterday, it is a narrow cabal of public school, mainly boys with a few outriders on the cultural wars like Sweller-Braverman, fighting over who gets the top chair. And that is so clear that Boris only wrote that letter supporting Brexit, having apparently, according to Reuters, met a group of Eastern European businessmen who persuaded him to get his own bag Cameron who was made head boy and he wasn't at Eton I mean that I'm, I'm serious if you're in Parliament if you look at the fighting yesterday this is a small number of entitled people fighting over the crown uh, over a crown over the riches and we have to ask about our political system that it has rewarded in a way this inward looking battle in the Conservative Party why did we have a referendum right why because Cameron In his third gamble, first gamble was the coalition, second one was Indy Ref where of 2014, you know, he had a scare there. Mm -hmm. And his third one, I will shut up the rights of my party in UKIP by winning a referendum. It was nothing to do with the interests of the country. It was his own political position within that toxic shark tank we call the conservative party which used to be famous as a conspiracy to gain power i would do anything practical changes tune before corn laws against corn laws before house building for against it for war against war in order to get power after i think it goes back to 1990 and the defenestration of thatcher and you had this hard rump of thatcherites who also you skeptics she famously left because well, poll tax riots, but this no, no, no about the single, well, about the euro and further union, which they made how leave, but they became from the practical party of slightly cynical conspiracy to gain power an ideological camp, and that ideology has gone. more, I mean, I, you know, people debate this. I'm arguing this with. with tom harwood from gb they're not a right wing far right wing party but they're definitely a hard right wing party and this ideology which particularly focused around brexit has debased the currency and the media mainly owned by oligarchs and billionaires many of whom don't pay tax here has egged this on for their own profit
0: Alexandra, from your former diplomat's position, how difficult do you think it is made to govern the UK when, as David says, you've got 62% of the people in Scotland voting to remain, but we have what is perceived to be an English nationalist Conservative Party leading the country and pushing us out of the European Union?
2: Well, the whole thing is just a complete tragedy because Brexit. I don't think it was a wise decision, but it needn't have turned out the way that it has. And Theresa May bears huge responsibility for this. She could, when she became prime minister, have taken the time to have a national consultation on the options before us in delivering Brexit and the pros and cons of each one and involving the Scottish and the Northern Ireland and the Welsh parts of our country. Instead, what was delivered was an English Brexit, largely, um, dictated by the most extreme wing of the Conservative Party, claiming a mandate they did not have to deliver the very hardest form of Brexit. And from that has stemmed all the ensuing problems, because Different sectors of society were marginalised. So business people had clear needs for what kind of Brexit could have been pursued. And they were marginalised. People who relied upon um, uh, foreign labour were marginalised. The civil service, who normally give advice on the pros and cons, have not just been marginalised, but heavily slandered. Um, anyone who voted Remain was accused of being Ramona's. The courts who tried to enforce some kind of due process in how Brexit was delivered, and including um, insisting that there be votes in Parliament, they were attacked as traitors. And Liz Truss's biggest mistake when she came in I mean, she was incredibly rude about almost every single sector of the society. She was rude about Nicola Sturgeon. She has been very dismissive about the needs of people in Northern Ireland. She was rude about President Macron. She then, during the conference, dismissed uh, again huge swathes of the population as being anti growth. And there has never, ever been an attempt to reform an inclusive approach to government that would have allowed the different voices to be heard. And that's why I fear what we're, what we're facing now is a huge crisis in our democracy. Um, in that a very small cabal have dictated policy for the last few years, and they are still fighting amongst themselves, as Peter has said, over the spoils. And the sense of entitlement that someone like Boris Johnson displays and thinking he should just be allowed back to be prime minister. And that if the rules suggest he might get deselected for lying to parliament, he can just rewrite those rules. That sense of entitlement. And Peter also talked about the sense of British exceptionalism. I used to host various members of government and various uh, MPs through Washington in my time in the embassy here as Brexit councillor, and it was absolutely extraordinary. They would go to right-wing think tanks that basically agreed with them, and they would say, well, German car makers, you know, will do a deal with us because they need us more than we need them. They dismissed loftily the concerns of the Irish-American caucus on the Hill. And they were absolutely impervious to any advice, absolutely impervious. We were all just deluded or Ramonas or disloyal. That is sort of the leitmotif of their entire government, of dismissing anyone who disagrees with them as traitors or anti-growth or disloyal or failing to take advantage of the um, advantages of Brexit. And so until we get a government and a prime minister who is willing to listen to different pieces of advice, again, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, what was one of the first things they did is they sacked the permanent secretary at the Treasury and refused to allow the Office of Budget Responsibility to publish advice. And that has been the leitmotif of this government. It's, it's an ideologically driven government that drowns out voices that don't agree with them. And this is a problem with our democracy. It's not democratic. And I've been following the, you know, on Twitter all today, um, voices saying, no, we shouldn't have a general election because this government has a mandate for another two years. We voted and they have another mandate. But that is not democracy. Same with the referendum. We had the referendum, but democracy doesn't mean one vote binding for all eternity. And so I really feel our country faces some very, very serious and troubling constitutional issues right now. And I don't know how much further we've got to go to sink before finally there is the final denouement and someone in their party says, we have got this wrong. You know, we have made mistakes. And it's not just that we appointed the wrong leader or that we communicated bad. We need to look into ourselves, look how we got to this point. And unfortunately, I think that means a period in opposition, quite a long period in opposition. And um, quite recently, my husband was saying, Alex, you need to be careful not to become a sort of partisan commentator. I'm not a partisan commentator. I'm looking for decent, competent government. I'm not ideologically to the right or ideologically to the left. I'm looking for competent government. We have not had that for the last six years. We have not had competent government. More fundamentally, we've not had honest government. That's what we need to return to. It's not a left-wing thing or a right-wing thing.
0: That's great insight as well from your, you know, your professional perspective. Uh, by all means, hang around and uh, uh, we'll come back to you shortly. And, and likewise to Peter. got quite a few people who want to chat with us as well tonight. So it'd be great if Peter and Alexander want to hang on and, and react to some of these uh, callers. Usually get some very good callers on these as well. Here's Omar, who is in the United States. Omar, long time no speak. Welcome to Byline Radio. You're right.
4: Thank you, Adrian. Really appreciate uh, what you do at all, as always. And Peter and Alex and, and and Alexandra and David. Thank you for the points you're making as well. I wanted to say a couple of things, and I think Alexandra in particular touched on a number of them. Um, For me, the key is governance. What is governance? That's the thing that we have to ask ourselves on a more general point, what governance is. Because under the Tories, what we've seen is governing of self-interest rather than governing uh, and running government for the benefit of the people of the country. Uh, When you have five prime ministers in six years, that is not government. It's destabilization. That is instability. And I think one of the things that Alexandra pointed to that I agree with is that it leaves the United Kingdom extremely vulnerable and certainly puts us in a very, very insecure footing. And what Peter talked about with this floodgate to destabil- instability in the country is, is spot on. And the last thing really that I want, want to say is just look at what has happened in these last few weeks, the last few years, um, the way that. Um, people in the Tory governments recently have done things, ignoring investigations, ignoring civil servants who do independent investigations, openly, arrogantly flouting any kind of protocol, the proroguing, the unlawful proroguing of Parliament. These do raise uh, very severe and serious constitutional questions. We don't have a, a fixed constitution per se. But we are supposedly governing um, with consent. But what we have are people now who are running roughshod over any kind of notion of implied consent in government. And it makes the country a very, very vulnerable country. And I I share the concerns that Alexandra in particular has raised about all of this uh, and how far structurally will the United Kingdom sink before we do something, because this is a very, very dangerous state of affairs. And I agree, um, democracy is is at stake, to say the very least. I think it's been at stake for a long time, but it's been at stake, it's really at stake now. Um, we're not going to have a general election for at least another year or two unless uh, the next prime minister calls a snap general election. Uh, this is all about governing self-interest, and it's deeply troubling.
0: That's a really fascinating insight, uh, Omar, and, and observation. And, Peter, I'll get you to respond to what Omar was saying about the ultimate threat to democracy, which I think is what he's driving at in the UK. And Indra Jay on Twitter makes a comment which plays into this, I think, Peter, saying that I think we're also missing the huge white elephant in the room, Russian money and interference. We know that Trump and Brexit uh, are the results. The Scottish independence in 2014, that vote was affected. And Lebedev, John Sweeney's documentaries, must-watch viewing. Until that sorting, nothing will be fixed. So... This is something, obviously, Byline Times has, has is investigated and exposed a lot, attempts at least, by uh, Russian oligarchs, the Russian state, to interfere with our politics.
1: And look, we've looked at the Nafiz Ahmed, our great investigation, special investigations uh, correspondent, has looked at US intelligence analyses, which confirmed our story for the last six years that Brexit was the biggest foreign policy coup for Vladimir Putin. Um, There is no doubt of their influence in the election, in in the referendum in 2016 in terms of RT and Sputnik and the troll farms owned by the guy who runs the paramilitary outfit Wagner. There is a wash of money from Russian oligarchs. In the Conservative Party. Uh, these things were repressed. The Russia report was, Boris Johnson tried to hold it back. It eventually came out heavily redacted. And as you're right, John Sweeney has shown his close proximity with the Lebedevs, but there are other oligarchs around. And this is a global picture because we see the funding of right wing parties, Eurosceptic, not now after Brexit, across Europe. In Germany, the AFD, Salvini in Italy, Le Pen gets a loan, Goldfielders gets money from Russia. There is a global threat to democracy from authoritarian, authoritarian oligarchies like Russia, you know, which has democratic features, and like China. And it's just extraordinary that the Brexit debacle meant that the biggest compromise, I always said, was that the Conservative Party couldn't admit this. That And Boris Johnson, late in the day, it seems it was only in February and January he said we could start shipping anti-tank missiles to Ukraine, may have cottoned on. But unlike Joe Biden, America's still in parlous position. Joe Biden, I think, whether you like him or not, you know, you think he's too right wing or too left wing or whatever. He's done a job and Congress has reasserted itself with the January 6th inquiry. The FBI has been active investigating Russian interference, various other oligarchs, sanctioning them. We've done nothing. To look at this in our own society in any official way, I sat on APPG, you know, these all parliamentary groups. Just one talk with Carol Cadwalader, Peter Pamoantsev, I think Elliot um, from Elliot Higgins from Bellingcat in 2018, saying it's a problem of dark money, dark data and ideology, because let's be clear, you can see it so clearly in Ukraine, but you can see it by Russian-funded right-wing movements across Europe and America. These are anti-democrats. They are part of the war. And they fund, Russian <laughs> oligarchs fund these anti-feminist movements, these anti-woke movements. They believe it, that globalism, that human rights, that the international order is bankrupt and nationism, aggression, imperialism should come back. And you can see it in Vladimir Putin's ideology. and uh, People around him like Dugin and Malafive, they believe in white male supremacy. That's the bigger battle. The best author on this is Timothy Schneider. And the problem is the empirical nation, Britain, the nation of great novelists and scientists who run on evidence, are like pragmatic, like shopkeepers. Thanks to this, what's happened the last six years, cannot look at itself. It's like it's hiding. It's like, what's that famous? I've got to say, Jekyll and Hyde notes the other one, Dorian Gray, yeah. where there's Boris Johnson, is this listening boy. There is, and we're seeing it now, the portrait of Britain is decaying in the attic. I had two calls today, one for deeply concerned friends in the Netherlands, in Poland. What's happening? People
5: look at us
1: and despair. Peter wants to join our conversation.
0: Uh, Peter, just tap your microphone. You can
5: join Yeah, hi. Yeah, I think we've got to look at, um, I'm actually thoroughly convinced that Brexit was actually a Trojan horse. Um, it was dragged up to the walls of the UK. Um, uh, they sold it through the herd instinct, which is a very powerful instinct uh, where you create an enemy, you um, an artificial enemy, you call the herd to defend itself and its DNA You uh, stoke up hatred, xenophobia, all the other bits and pieces. And it is so powerful, that herd instinct, that people will respond to it. Now, it happened in, you can see it in Russia at the moment, uh, where they control the media, uh, they spin out lies, and people want to believe it. And it's a very similar pattern here in in the UK. But what has actually happened is that this is not the Conservative Party. Uh, This is uh, some sort of UKIP, ERG concoction, um, which has slowly taken over. Uh, If you remember, the ERG sat in judgment of Theresa May, uh, deals she got... They sent her packing and said no. Uh, They wanted no deal. But the whole thing, the whole purpose of this was to uh, create a blueprint from Tufton Street um, to put an authoritarian sort of regime in this country uh, which was low taxes for selected groups, um, deregulation, um, to then kind of drag the whole country down, take away people's rights, worker rights, and all the other rubbish we're looking at. They're trying to put into place. They want to. I think it was Baker who wanted, who actually openly said, um, "I want to dismantle the UK, but to create it into what? Some sort of authoritarian um, experiment." to benefit an elite, an elite only. So, I don't see this as a conservative... I I think there's a massive split in the Conservative Party at the moment, uh, which is a big proportion of the ERG, who were desperate to keep Boris Johnson in place. Uh, Not every single one, but the majority of them, or the hard right, if you want. they scuppered uh sunak because they hate him and uh, they wanted to keep johnson in they couldn't so then they decided oh we've got uh who's a complete puppet and we can kind of tell her what to do and she'll put it all into place and continue with our reset of the uk okay <laughs> thanks
0: yeah interesting thought thank you go on david henry you want to
3: Yeah, um, I remember reading a very interesting article in, I think it was the New Statesman, back when uh, the Brexit was still to happen. And it was made clear that what they were actually proposing was to try and create uh, Singapore on the Thames. That was their idea. Now, if anyone knows that uh, after the British uh, disastrous ruling of it, it was left almost destitute and... Uh, Malaysia wanted nothing to do with them and cut them off Um, and they were left on their own. But because of their position in the world, they were able to build uh, effectively um, a port and deal with trade. But in fact, it is a a very low taxation. Um, The ironic thing is (laughs) the idea of the UK being able to be turned into Singapore on the Thames. First of all, 80% of all property in Singapore is owned by the state. So that wouldn't really fit unless you want to give up your house to the Tory government. But they want so their idea, um, which doesn't fit the UK in a Western democracy, uh, you have very few uh, human rights in uh, Singapore. So freedom of expression is curtailed. Um, There's many, many issues that don't fit a Western democracy. But that is what this Tufton Street group, are looking to do. They're looking to, dis- as far as I can tell, dismantle the UK's economy. There's talk of free ports. Free ports means there's no laws, no rules, no minimum wages, no nothing. It's run by a company for the benefit of the company. So this is trying, I think, trying to take the UK back 100 years and re-establish the British uh, Empire, thinking that somehow, Britain will be next to Europe, they couldn't, I mean, I I agreed with a lot of what Peter had said. Um, The mentality that was being pushed in 2016 to win that vote was that somehow Britain is exceptional. We're an exceptional country. Normal rules don't apply here. We can disconnect ourselves from the single market and the 500 million consumers just 23 miles away. And somehow they wouldn't dare Um, want to put up barriers because they won't be able to sell us their BMWs. Well, the truth is, um, and if anyone had bothered to to look at it, uh, I think the EU's exports to the UK, it's 4%. 4% of all EU exports came to the UK. 46% of the UK's exports went to the EU. And I remember discussing this with people. Who do you think it's going to damage the most? It's certainly gonna be hardly noticeable if the total uh, amount of being exported is just 4%. But if you're relying on 46% of your exports to go to that market and you get cut off, who does it hurt the most? The truth is the UK, and I've been seeing reports elsewhere, Brexit is damaging every part of our society, whether it's jobs, investment, Uh, We've got a shortage of skills, well of course we've got a shortage of skills, um, because we made people feel very uncomfortable and they weren't welcome here anymore.
0: Let me bring in Hannah, welcome Hannah, your first time I think on Byline Radio. Hannah Ali, good to speak to you, you're right.
6: Um, Thank you very much, I'm a big supporter of Byline Radio and it's not the first time I do follow you, Uh, it's just, yes. I've listened to a lot of speakers and they have touched in. in, um, They've spoken about a lot of things that are actually real and fundamentally that is uh, affecting us. But there is also one aspect of it that we are not looking at it. Um, And I would like to bring this uh, to the focus, which is lack of a strong uh, opposition party. Uh, Currently, uh, I am a Labour member, just for disclaimer, but. Uh, We have a lousy uh, opposition party and this uh, has gone. They've not been there to do actual job to get uh, the the Tory government to put them in check. So uh, we have two problems at the same time. Yes, Tory government has... uh, uh, have uh, been messing up a lot, they've done a lot of uh, things, as everybody else say. I'll, I agree absolutely with Alexandra, Peter, and so on, but at the same time, we are lacking a strong uh, opposition party that can hold the government uh, into question. They are doing it, but I do not find it to be a strong opposition government.
0: Pani, sorry to interrupt you, but you are a Labour member, are you? But you feel that, what, your leader, Keir Starmer, isn't doing enough to hold the government to account?
6: Absolutely. I do feel Keir Starmer is not doing enough. Uh, at times, I feel like he's just merely uh, doing a lip service to whatever he's saying. And I don't feel like he is actually representing me or representing uh, the Labour Party as it should be and he is not a strong uh, opposition leader he if he was if we had a very competent opposition leader uh, most of the things uh, uh the the current government will not get away with it up to some extent i'm not saying that everything uh the labor party could stop it um that is how it is uh in, in, in the parliament, we do not have the numbers, but at the same time, if there was strong uh, Labour uh, opposition party, oh, he would have been able to rally actual some of the uh, uh, conservative party uh, uh, uh Um, MPs, it could have rallied most of the other uh, parties as well, and be a fierce and a strong opposition to the government and question the government in every aspect and every angle. But I don't think they've come as strong as I would love them to be.
0: Okay, well, let me ask Peter what he thinks of that. Keir Starmer, Labour generally not doing enough to hold government to account.
6: Okay, I have this.
1: I am a senior member of the Byline Times T. I'm so I'm in my sixties, and I saw the impatience about Starmer. I, you know, is not very good six months ago, and I kind of thinking, mm, let's see. You know, obviously resentment from the left. They are doing a bit of what they did in the nineties, and I think unnecessarily extirpating some more left wing members. But that aside, I was in um, the. PMQs for the first time ever, as I said yesterday. And Starmer was pretty much wiping the floor with trust. That might seem quite not a difficult task. And there's a great line, isn't there? Uh, <laughs> Never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake. What I what I would say, not by means of justification, just by means of observation, I think, I think it may have been even on your programme I heard this, uh, Adrian, when you talked to the former Deputy Leader Tom Watson, i mean basically starmer took over from corbyn thinking they wouldn't be in power until the election after the next one and members of my staff saying johnson's going to get two terms isn't he i mean if you didn't look at the inverted pyramid of piffle of lies uh you might think that but i think my hunch was no this is all but as alexandra uh confirms this is all built on lies and lies the cost of lies as they come crumbling down. So Labour didn't really weren't thinking so much about taking powers like how do we, you know, how do we reform the opposition? And it's only now like they're beginning to come out with policies like an energy company, like um, you know, reforming the House of Lords. I hope they get their skates on. I don't really see in this uh, age and time. I mean, you have to t- attend all the debates, see various. Other front bench members, Yvette Cooper tackling, you know, all the terrible things which, which um, Men and before that, Priti Patel were doing. You have to see that if you're only watching PMQs, it's sort of like sports. Oh, Johnson was good. this. Oh, she wasn't bad. Oh, Starmer wasn't very strong with that punchline. But I think they are beginning to get their act together. But in a way, with all political parties, it's about, you, you know, it's war by other means and you force them. You force them to take this on the agenda, electoral reform, whatever. Alex, you know, constitutional reform. We are, in the end, I think we're too easily led and not activists enough because politics. politicians do what they have to do. And you box them in a corner and say, you've got to reform this thing. You create a movement. Journalism has a vital role here. I mean, our plan, if Starmer looks like he's going to enter office soon, is to start going through all the things we've detected in the last four years. Alexandra talks about the dysfunctions in our democracy, the unfairness, the idea of these think tanks, by the way, which could well be funded by Russian money because they don't say. Danny Blanchard always asks them. They never answer. That these think tanks who call themselves free market are actually just promoting oligopolies they're just it's cronyism it's all the kind of thing adam smith would have hated perpetuated by the adam smith institute we've got to go through things like why they have charitable status all these things put it on the agenda and say why labor aren't you doing something about it because ultimately a democracy they respond to us can
2: i check in Yeah. hey so um It's been great listening to these different perspectives. I mean, I'm afraid I agree a little bit with Hannah, in fact, quite a lot about the opposition. And the title of this session is Trust Quits, What Next? And I feel sorry to have to say this, but one of the big reasons for Boris Johnson's win in 2019 wasn't just his simplistic message about getting Brexit done but that the opposition did not have a compelling alternative to offer. And Jeremy Corbyn, who obviously animated one section of the electorate very strongly, also turned off quite a lot of the rest of the electorate. And I know many, many people who said, well, I don't like Boris, but I absolutely can't vote for Jeremy Corbyn. And um, we've spent a lot of time saying how dishonest Tory politicians were about the implications of Brexit, but I'm afraid it is also the case that Labour has been extremely disingenuous in um, its Brexit policy, in um, explaining the implications of the various options leading up to the vote, being a little bit ambiguous about how they would vote, how they would negotiate a different deal. And even now, ruling out, rejoining the customs union or the single market. Now, I understand the sort of domestic political calculations. We need to get into office and we mustn't scare off Brexit voters. But we need our leading politicians to be honest to our voters. And they are still themselves not being fully honest about the implications of staying out of the customs union and the single market. So I'm afraid I do agree that Labour has been a bit timid, in you know the the battle is being fought on the Conservatives' turf the whole time, and I do wish Labour could not just uh, position itself as being a safer, duller, less chaotic alternative to the Conservatives, but really, really spelling out more clearly what they would do differently, and for some reason. Um, they've not yet, as far as I've been able to see, been able to do that.
5: Can I butt in quickly?
2: Yeah. Uh, well,
0: Alexandra, hold on a second. I wanted to put a point to Hannah, actually, because uh, I wondered, Hannah, and picking up of Alexandra's point there, if if being dull and competent is kind of what Keir Starmer <laughs> aspires to, perhaps he aspires to more than that, but I think he gives that impression often that that being dull and competent is where he sees himself really you know let's not frighten the horses when you heard jeremy hunt delivering his response to becoming chancellor and reversing the national insurance reductions and cutting uh, reversing you turning on the 45p rate of income tax and so on you kind of thought oh well maybe jeremy hunt is dull and competent. So uh, Labour, as you say, Hannah, has kind of got to carve out a bit of space for itself that is different to simply dull and competent, doesn't it?
6: Absolutely. And he's... uh... I think uh, the lack of uh, confidence, and um, um, I'll go as far as saying, incompetent of uh, of uh, the labor leader uh, is that he is not a, a risk taker. He does not want to put himself out there and you know say the things that you know it might be risk. It might look uh, whoa, you know. But how is that going to uh, respond, or how are they, how is the elector going to uh, electro going to take it? But that it's a risk that you have to take as a leader. You have to take. You have to. Make the tough decisions, and what I see from Kiestama is he he does not want to make that uh, bold moves, and he does not want to take that risk. Uh, whether it's a reason of appeasing uh, part of the uh, uh, the members or the the or the 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 actual electorate, so we need somebody who is bold enough and who can take risks. You can. Uh, it's actually. Um, it's actually very frustrating when you can see all the mess and all the drama that is unfolding on the other side and uh, uh, and if you look at the polls the difference between uh, 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 the best times when boris johnsons boris johnson was uh, prime minister and all the chaos and everything that was unfolding uh, during the pandemic and afterwards and if you look at the polls the difference uh, the the gap between the labor and, and and the conservative was absolutely uh, minuscule for me and, and we which it shouldn't be with all the all the drama that was unfolding within the um, Conservative uh, camp. And all this is because uh, my leader or our leader as the Labour Party, uh, which actually I did not uh, vote for him anyways, uh, is not taking a strong stand. He's not willing to take chances. He has not uh, put uh, his strong foot uh, forward.
0: Is there is there a particular uh, policy or uh, area of policy, Hannah, that you'd like to see him saying something distinctive and strong about that he isn't at the moment?
6: Actually, there is nothing distinct and strong that he's been saying maybe for the last couple of weeks.
0: Is there something that he's missing that you would like him to say? Anything in particular? Any particular area of policy that you feel strongly about that he isn't addressing strongly enough?
6: Yes, in areas to do with the uh, the, the, the the taxation, the reform of uh, the energy, um, in areas uh, of uh, deporting the um, deportation of the um, the asylum seekers, uh, there is a lot. There is a lot that he is not bringing out policies, or he's not uh, clearly where he is. And most of all is in regards to uh, joining the uh, single market. He is not absolutely absolutely touching that and i don't think uh he does want to touch that in just because of not upsetting the brexiters uh part of the electorate but i think it's something that he needs to actually which is fundamental for me to focus on if we're going to get our economy up and if we're going to face it that um Brexit has not uh, done anything. All the things that were promised during Brexit uh, did not happen. Uh, it, ha- it has actually caused a lot of uh, problems in many sectors of the society. So if he could actually put a stand on that, only that, and say, you no, know, we are going to be part of the, uh, the single market, only that would have been a, a, a plus for him.
0: Great to speak to you, Hannah. Thank you. I'm going to take a final call in now. Thank you to everybody, by the way, who has joined in. And I'm sorry if uh, I've not been able to get you on uh, or if you've not had the chance to say everything you want to say. But I really am grateful for everybody joining in. And this is such a febrile political moment. We may well be here again at this time tomorrow night. So please do come and join us. Uh, before we go and before we take our final call, I just remind you that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It is a fantastic, good old-fashioned newspaper. It has some of the best of the articles that we have online at bylinetimes.com, but also has unique content that you cannot get anywhere else. A subscription starts from as little as £3 a month, so please take out a subscription. You'll not only get that fantastic newspaper, but you're helping to support Byline TV, you're helping to support Byline Radio, and the Byline Times podcast as well. Uh, let's go to Fee, who is going to be our final caller this evening. Hi, Fee. Welcome.
7: Hello. Thank you. Yeah. Um, right. I'm just a, a granny. Um, nothing special. I don't support any particular party, but I have been very, very interested in politics for some years um, and went down to Froom for the Unlocked Democracy um Magna Carta thing, event they had in 2015 anyhow I just wanted to address a few things it's not a game show we're talking about running the country for the majority of the people it's not a game show you don't take risks I can fully understand why only certain segments of what um Kez Dharma have planned have been released to the press because more often than not you find it in some kind of watered down or trumpeted way coming out of a tourist map so such things are for the manifestos when they come out so that was the first thing um, we really need to get the reports out the Russia report, the reports into the disability problems, all these reports that this lot have been sitting on and then, you know, we're not going to see them because, oh they're irrelevant because we've all got three ports. <laughs> 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 this, this goes on, it all, it's all linked. No, well, listen, I mean, I,
0: I, Peter will. Um, I'll get Alexander to comment as well. But uh, Peter, on Keir Starmer, I, do, I mean, I do have some sympathy because uh, Fee says some of what he says will end up in the Conservatives' mouths, and uh, that, that's partly true. But we also know, don't we? And again, part of the power of byline radio in opposition to the mainstream media is we know that there's this group of newspapers run by. Oligarchs, really, run by non-DOMs, people who have interests beyond these shores. And we're talking about the Daily Mail, we're talking about Murdoch's papers, we're talking about the Telegraph, that will seek to seize upon anything that Starmer says and destroy it. They will do that as a matter of principle, because they're serving other interests.
1: That just to me, Edwin. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, I Because I... I, I Alex, you know, Alex's view is is very good and this is very even because she has kind of worked in the blob and abroad and she sort of sees beyond the partisanship. But it is quite clear that Labour leaders have faced uh, unique opposition from the mainstream press. I've done a podcast, Daniel Morgan Murder. They had murder suspects bugging apartments, burglaring to get dirt on politicians. That's what Murdoch did. We see the kind of monstering that Dacre does (laughs) And, you know, Corbyn had a really hard time. Ed Miliband didn't have a good time. And But now I think the the good news is, I think, that they're a bit of a busted flush, like Tufton Street. I think they're a t- busted flush. Why? If the way that the Blair, I'm not sure he needed to do it in retrospect, the one way that Blair thought he could come to power, and bring new Labour to power, was to cozy up to Murdoch. And he flew out to see him being godfather to his children, for God's sake. And I think this, they're losing circulation. They've lost circulation for 10 years. And these papers, they do still set the agenda. They still bully the BBC and get them, you know, all their papers on the front page of the, uh, you know, paper review every every day. But their circulation is declining. And I'm really, honestly, for the last 10 years, if you look at what, how they shut down the second part of the Leveson inquiry into press ethics, if you look at the way their former employees, Michael Gove and Boris Johnson were boosted into power, the papers have basically become a lobbying outfit. This isn't free market. This is a stitch up whereby they get to choose who's in power. They then get bungs back. They get VAT off their paper, the websites. They get these COVID bungs, hundreds of millions of pounds uh, in advertising during COVID. It's exactly what Adam Smith hated. A clack of rich people meeting in private and not serving the interests of the public. I think this pyramid of piffle I talked about um, is all coming, crumbling down. And I hope Alex agrees with me and she'll still hold my hand and stay there while we survive in the debris.
2: I'm uh, on behalf of the blob. (laughs) Thanks, Peter. I mean, I think you're right. Um, I have been out of party politics and as a former civil servant, I find it very hard to sort of sound political. But yes, I think there is a huge problem of the cozy nexus of politicians, media barons, political party donors and business barons who um, belong to the same clubs or meet at private dinners and stitch things up. And I think, it again, it goes back to the state of our democracy, and it is really worrying to me, and it is worrying to me that some of these cronies and donors then can be offered peerages and then get into the House of Lords. So what the last few years have exposed to me is that we need to look really carefully at the structure of our government because it's manifestly obvious to me we don't have the sufficient checks and balances. And this sort of reliance on, you know, good public school. I don't like to be classist either, but this sort of good chap theory that, you know, we were all at school together and we're decent good chaps, that manifestly has failed as well. Um, That is obviously not the case. And we need more robust systems in place to expose wrongdoing and... uh, I also believe we need to look at first-past-the-post as an electoral system because it has produced these completely skewed outcomes and they don't reflect um, the balance of opinion in the UK. And I think someone said earlier on, um, you know, so many of us feel marginalised and we ha- we're we sort of held captive while this Tory leadership contest plays out again. And we have to sort of look on mutely with no voice in it and no say, and that is not democracy.
1: And meanwhile, so I'm sorry to keep harping
2: on that, but that was probably my final contribution. No, no. I okay. need at least another three gin and tonics. I was going to say, and meanwhile,
0: <laughs> thousands of children who are in poverty are not eligible for school meals, but simply being on universal credit is not enough to qualify for a school meal. People are genuinely concerned about whether they're going to be able to heat their homes this winter. There are
2: it's pe- like Fee said. I'm sorry to cut into you, but she said it's not a game show. Mm. Quite right. Yeah. And I will shut up there.
0: <laughs> okay. It's been great to have you on. Thank you. And thanks for sticking around, Alexandra. Thank you, Peter. It's been great to have you for the duration as well. And I know these spaces can go on for a little while but that's part of the joy of them as well they can be a bit free-flowing and i'm grateful to everybody who has joined in as i say sorry if you didn't get the chance to express everything that you wanted to or if you didn't get on at all but uh, i'm still grateful for you for taking part and for everybody who just listened and just please spread the word around your social media you'll see this link on at byline radio to this show and it will emerge then as a byline times podcast please share spread the good word and we will be back very soon with more of this but it has been a momentous day don't forget to take out a subscription as well to the byline times get details at bylinetimes.com and finally thank you to harvey white who does so much great work in producing these byline radio episodes and turning them into Byline Times podcasts. Right, I'm Adrian
7: Goldberg. Thanks, everyone. See you soon now. Cheers. Bye bye.